Um, so today we have a guest, as uh, Paul has says, uh, Kevin, Reverend Kevin Thompson. I, I met Kevin when I first became a pastor back in Eastern Carolina, Presbytery up in North Carolina. Um, he was the pastor of Christ Our Comfort, which was a church that was designed to reach out to the Raleigh area in, uh, and care for people who were in dire straits in many ways. And it was an amazing church, and still is an amazing church, although it's changed its name to Christ Our King now. Uh, he is now the pastor of Watershed Fellowship in Lexington, and he is helping us as a presbytery. He's sort of the director of our church planting, and he uh, does a great job of helping plant churches in our area. So um, he, he is a, a great guy, very thoughtful, very understanding, and one who loves Jesus and who uh, is not ashamed of the gospel and is willing to go out and really proclaim the good news to people in a way that is winsome and, and beautiful, really. So I just want to welcome him up here to uh, preach the word to us, and uh, let's, let's listen to what he has to say to us today from God's word. All right. Thanks for that. Well, good morning. Good to see you all. Um, and I bring you greetings from Watershed Fellowship. They're worshiping right now. And also Palmetto Presbytery. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited to be here, but for many reasons, because I got a call this morning, and uh, my associate pastor said, Hey, uh, Kevin, there's a leak in the back, and there's a leak in the front in the building. And then the, the speakers in the old mill, we meet in an old mill, they're blaring some alarm, and I can't get them to turn off. And and the stairs that lead down into our space, they're busted. Somebody busted them last night. And so I was like, all right, I'm glad I'm going to Sumter. <laughs> so he, he'll take care of it. Um, yesterday was a real blessing for me to do the Questions of the Heart workshop here. And um, just thank you for putting up with me for another time. Uh, hopefully the Lord will bless it as well. And just... Uh, just sitting in on your Sunday school with Bobby and Betsy, I mean, just just the, the kindness of Jesus coming out of them. I mean, you, I don't think they'd have to say a single word. Uh, you could just, just Jesus kind of comes out of them. So if you get any time with them later today, uh, spend some time with them, and uh, you'll see Jesus. But uh, today, I wanted to think about this whole concept of evangelism. You know, when we think of evangelism, we think of this big global vision, a biblical vision where uh, God has called us uh, to reach every man, woman, and child with the gospel from every nation, tribe, and tongue. But, you know, it, it really the, it meets the road each and every day. And so I want to zoom in on just an ordinary day uh, rather than just a big vision of evangelism. And so we're going to look at a man who asked for something he thought he wanted, but he was given something he never expected. Luke has strategically placed 
this moment in the history of the church right at the beginning of the book of Acts. It's in chapter 3, 1 through 16. And he wants it to, to hit us right from the get-go. He wants to stop us in our tracks. And he wants us to see that the church is on mission and that the church should walk with the Spirit and that we should expect heart-changing, mind-altering transformation in people's lives because we possess the power of the resurrection, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. And so when this resurrection collides with the world, when this resurrection collides with, resur with uh, religion, things change. People's lives are transformed. And if we're honest, though, we've got to admit that there are many days that we don't experience the power of the resurrection. Just kind of living the same old, same old and settling for day after day, Sunday after Sunday. And so this passage gives us a snapshot in different lives of people in their same old, same old. So let's look at Acts 3, 1 through 16. Acts 3, 1 through 16. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us! And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, your word is sweeter than honey. And Lord, you tell us that if, if we seek after it, as we do silver and gold, that Lord, you'll make us wise and you will grant it to us. So Lord, we are dependent on the Holy Spirit to speak through your word today and live in our hearts Enlighten our eyes, and Lord, empower our, our wills and our souls to, to take hold of these truths. 
to live in the power of the resurrection. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as you'll see in this passage, in verse 1, it says, now. In other verses, in the Acts of the Greek, it says one day. One day, an ordinary day in the life of three different kinds of people. And we're going to see each of these in this passage. Those who uphold their religion, a beggar who takes advantage of religion, and then Peter and John who hold out the gospel. Those who hold up their religion, those who take advantage of religion, and those who hold out the gospel. And so let's look at the first one. Those who try to uphold their religion. It says, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon, the ninth hour of prayer. You see, an ordinary Israelite's life was centered around the temple in the hours of prayer. If you know your Old Testament, you also know that even Daniel, when he was in Babylon, he would, he would stop three times a day and he would pray. He would open his window toward the temple and pray three times a day. And on this day, it was the ninth hour, three in the afternoon. I mean, come on, y'all, the ninth hour of prayer. Ninth hour of prayer. There were about 12 hours that they would spend praying. The ninth hour was the busiest one. It kind of reminds me of that old Dunkin' Donuts commercial, and this will age me a little bit. You know, the guy's in the bed, and the alarm goes off. He's like, oh, time to make the donuts. Time to make the donuts. I'm glad somebody makes those donuts. Don't get me wrong. But the same old, same old, morning after morning, time to make the donuts. Time to go to church. Time to go to small group. Time to go to worship practice. Time to do my devotional. Time to go to youth group. Time to go to prayer. Time to go to a leader's meeting. Do you ever feel that way? you ever feel the same old, same old? Yeah. Week after week, month after month, year after year. You know, you keep doing these spiritual activities day after day, week after week. And before you know it, you begin to not expect anything to happen. You don't expect any spectacular thing to happen. I mean, day after day, these Israelites would go to the ninth hour of prayer and nothing would happen. God had been silent for 418 years until John the Baptist and Jesus comes on the scene. See, they had rejected the gospel for the sake of upholding their religion. They had rejected Jesus, the Messiah, so that they could uphold their laws their rituals. Now James in his epistle talks about pure religion of taking care of orphans and widows. That's not what I'm talking about. It's the, the religion for religion's sake. And it's empty. It offers nothing for the heart. You know, this can be illustrated in all kinds of ways. It can be illustrated to uh, upholding your religion to merit God's attention or favor in your life by what you do. Most religions are based on this. Uh, when I lived in Raleigh, one of my neighbors was named Mo, Muhammad, short for Muhammad. He was a Muslim, and we were great friends. And uh, it was funny. We would try to outdo each other many days. You know, uh, I would uh, mow my neighbor's yard, and then he would mow his neighbor's, and then we, we, I'd do the next one, and he'd do the next one, and, and we'd be at it. And I remember one morning he, he uh, met me in the driveway, 
and he said, hey, Kevin, you know, how many of your people wake up at 5 in the morning to pray? I said, dude, I don't even wake up at 5 in the morning to pray, so I can't expect my people to. And uh, so he talked about just all the things he does, those pillars of Islam. And I said, well, what, what if your alarm doesn't go off one day, man? What, what's Allah going to say about that? And he said, well, you know, I'm not, you know, relying on all that so much as just that Allah might have mercy on me when my time comes. I thought, hmm. So we're relying on the same thing for salvation is mercy. But I have evidence. And you're doing all these other things, hoping that it'll measure up so that he'll show you mercy at some time. He was far more moral and more religious than I was, but that's not what I'm banking my salvation on. Or maybe it's keeping up appearances, like a conversation I had with a prominent um, community developer, a landowner. I asked him about why he goes to the church that he goes to. I knew that he was a believer, but he goes to a church that doesn't preach the gospel. Very much a social institution. I said, why in the world do you keep doing that? He says, well, my wife's family's always gone there, and, you know... there's just generations there, and I just don't want to rock the boat. You know, I just don't want to mess things up for my kid. Uh-huh. So, so you go every Sunday not expecting to hear the truth or the gospel, and you think that's going to be good for your family? Just so that you don't rock the boat. Upholding our religion, keeping up appearances. Or maybe it's superstition. Maybe you, you do certain things devotionally because in your mind you think if I stop doing these things, God won't bless me. I've I got to keep doing my devotional every day. If I miss one, God's going to not be so happy with me. I've I got to keep praying my prayer list. I've got to I keep upholding it for God to bless me or to love me. It's, it's almost like the Israelites when they would take the ark of God out to battle as a talisman like all the other nations. He's our, our lucky charm. He's, he's, we, we put some kind of superstitious belief in these things, as if God is in that. Well, the Israelites realize that God doesn't play that game, that he loves them despite them. Well, what about ritual? Just that if you do something long enough, consistently enough, the repetition and the volume of it will get God's attention. God has a lot to say about that, that he's not into the ramblings of uh, the people. He's not into all the repetition. He's about a relationship. You see, this is a spiritual rat race, this upholding religion. But after a while, the end of it all, you continue doing church, you continue doing the Christian thing with no expectation of anything happening. And you leave with nothing of value. These were the Israelites at the ninth hour of prayer. Well, let's look at the second one. Those who want a handout from religion. Taking advantage of religion. In verse 2 it says, Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate, called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. The same old, same old of this beggar, his every day was being put in front of the beautiful gate. 
Now, you can look at this as a couple ways. You know, either this man was a brilliant entrepreneur because he picked the best place at the best time for the best people to get money, to get some coinage. You see, the ninth hour of prayer was the busiest hour, and the beautiful gate was the most beautiful entrance into the temple. And it was beautiful because as you walked through, you could see all the glory of the inner workings of the temple. But also, this, this gate was this Corinthian bronze, uh, beautiful gate, 60 feet wide. It was beautiful. It was glorious. Now, he had the best place, the best time, and he knew these folks were the best ones trying to uphold their religion. He was going to rack up, they were trying to rack up some brownie points if they would give alms to the poor, because that was part of it as well. Or you can see him as a pawn of somebody else. It says that he was put at the gate every day. It could have been a grave injustice where either you can rot to death, or you can let us put you at the gate and get money all day, you get 10% of the cut, and we'll take the rest. Either version is not good, but at least he went every day expecting something and leaving with something of value. And we've all experienced the guy on the side of the road holding up the sign saying, God bless you if you, if you give. Uh, if you're a deacon here, Lord bless those deacons. They get lots of calls about all kinds of things. Um, and when you press the issues, they really just want you to take care of their defaults. And so we need to think about how do we take advantage of religion? And it's, it's a little more subtle, but you know, church is a great networking tool for our business. That's a great networking tool for our business. We can also take advantage of a church for the youth group. You know, hey, I'll drop the kids off. I'll go and do some errands, get some things done. Glorified babysitters, taking advantage of that. Or this church has a great singles group. You know, hey, you know, there's some, there's some righteous foxes in this place. That's where I'm going. Some of you single guys. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's good to find your, your woman at church. But we've got to watch out for that we're not having a consumer mindset when it comes to church. That it only exists to benefit me. And it only exists to benefit me in an earthly sense. Not in the spiritual eternal sense that they are here to serve me rather than me to serve them and to honor Christ with it. Let's look at the third one. We're going to spend our time on this one. Peter and John, those who hold out the gospel by the power of the resurrection. Now what about Peter and John? Now most of their lives, they probably were in the first category. They are probably part of the upholding their religion. You know, I can just imagine them as, as little guys and their mom and their grandmother saying, okay, Peter and John, now wash behind your ears and, 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 and go to the ninth hour prayer and take that little rascal James with you. He's up to no good these days. 
But now their same old, same old has changed. You see, they don't, they don't go to the temple to meet with God. They have already met God in Christ Jesus now. They have seen him heal people. They have seen him walk on water. They have listened to his amazing teaching. They saw him beaten and crucified. They wrestled with the way that they denied him and betrayed him and abandoned him in the garden. They experienced his his resurrection after the crucifixion. They had fellowship with him, the, the one right before going to ascension, the Holy One. They heard his command to go and to wait for the Spirit. And the Spirit of God fell upon them. They were empowered. You see, they don't uphold religion anymore. They have the power of the resurrection dwelling in them. And so, as Tim Keller says, they became the meeting place of God. No longer did the Shekinah glory dwell in the temple. You remember as crucifixion, the Holy of Holies was ripped, uh, the curtain was ripped in two. Now, the Holy of Holies Spirit dwells in them. The beautiful thing about Pentecost is not that they started speaking in tongues. It was that every one of them were filled with the Spirit. In the Old Covenant, it was the prophets and the priests and the kings. Only some of them had uh, that special presence of God to do the work of God. Now all the people of God have the Spirit, and they are the meeting place of God. They are the mountain of God. They are the temple of God, the house of God to this world. So wherever God's people go... They are those who represent Christ. They are the ones who hold out the testimony and the witness and the gospel to those around them. No matter if they're those who uphold the religion or those who are taking advantage of religion. They demonstrate the power of the resurrection in their lives. They expected the Spirit of God to do amazing things. Because they had seen God do amazing things. So, as those who possess the power of the resurrection, those who are the meeting place of God, we must not overlook those who God puts in our path. We must not overlook those opportunities that God places before us. And now my wife's mother is from England, and they call... Uh, speed bump, sleeping policemen. And so God puts all kinds of people, all kinds of sleeping policemen to slow us down, to, to remind us of who we are, to remind us of what he has called us to be. And many times these folks are broken. Many times these people are hard to deal with. They're not just uh, speed bumps, they're brick walls. Maybe you're one of those brick walls. Maybe you have many brick walls in your life. God has called you to meet them where they're at with the gospel, with the resurrection power. He wants to stop you in your tracks. Now, if you turn to the next slide. So what should we expect when we stop and hold out the gospel by the power of the resurrection. We should expect psychological, social, physical, and spiritual transformation. 
psychological, social, and spiritual transformation, physical transformation. You see, sin and the fall has isolated us from ourselves to understand who we are. It has isolated us from each other. It has isolated us to a, a, a frail um, physicality. It, is, it has isolated us from a relationship with God. And so we need transformation in all of these areas. And so let's just see how the power of the resurrection affected Peter, John, and the beggar in verses 3 through 8. Verse 3 through 8 says, Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us! And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I mean, you first see the psychological transformation of this young man. He says, seeing them, he asked them for alms. This man could only see people as objects because he himself had only been viewed as an object all his life. He was not viewed as human, but an outcast. At best, he was pitied. At worst, he was a piece of trash on the side of the road. Something to be avoided. Mike Jankowski, a theological student, he decided to live on the streets for a year just to see what it was like for those who were in desperation. He made a great observation. He said, while kids might pretend people who don't exist do, it's parents who pretend that unwanted people who do exist don't. Kids might pretend people who don't exist do, it's parents who pretend that unwanted people who do exist don't. You know, when I was planting Christ Our Comfort, and I shared this story yesterday, but it really did transform the way I thought about ministry, the way I thought about the big business of church planting and, and the gospel. I'd gathered a group of folks together to, to do this leadership meeting, and it, those kind of meetings are so difficult to get everybody there, and you have it all together, and you're ready, and we sat down, and then the door opened to our space. And in comes John Schwartz hobbling in on a crutch with his leg was a bloody mangle. And just in my arrogance, ah, not right now. And I looked at the leaders, I said, hey, I'll take care of this really arrogantly. And so I whisked him in my office and I said, hey, do you need some food? Do you need some money? What, what do you need? And he couldn't even look up at me. He couldn't even look up at me and he said, you know, I, I don't, I don't want any food and I don't need any money. Could you just speak to me as if I was human? Could you just speak to me as if I was human? He had just tried to throw himself in front of a car to kill himself. He had been abused all of his life. The addiction to deal with that abuse had mastered him. And he was all alone in this world. I thought nobody will notice. All he wanted to do was to be spoken to as if he was human. You know, his... His question grabbed a hold of my heart that day and has never let it go. That those who are created in the image of God have honor and respect. And we have something that can redeem the isolation that they 
think about themselves, how they view themselves. We have something to give to them. What about socially? Verse 4, it said, Peter looked straight at him as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. This man was still viewing them as a score. If I just catch their eyes, I'm going to get some Caesars. If I just catch their eyes, I got them. But Peter and John, they looked at him, treated him as a human, but then they invited him into a relationship. Look at us. Look at us. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. What I have precious to me, I'm going to give to you. Something valuable for someone who is of great value. Now, this passage has been used many times to uh, challenge people not to give money to the poor. <laughs> That's a whole nother sermon. They don't deserve it. They'll just abuse it. But the question I have to ask us, and I think this passage is asking a better question, a more beautiful question, is what do I have to give? I would say most of the time, it is so easy just to give some coins, just to pass the buck so that you avoid the relationship, you, res you avoid the responsibility, you avoid the mess of entering into a relationship with someone. It's easier just to pay it off and to be done with it. Maybe that's all we do have to give to people. Sure looks like that many a day. Maybe the reason we don't stop and invite people into a relationship is because we really don't have anything to offer. To the extent that we love our neighbor by the power of the resurrection is in direct correlation to the extent that you understand God's love shown towards you. Maybe the reason we don't stop and love people is because we really don't understand the love that God has shown us in Christ. Maybe we've never really taken that in, that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us, that he laid down his life willingly for his sheep, that when everybody else saw a mob, Jesus saw sheep without a shepherd, harassed and left for dead. One of the greatest needs that people have today is a friend. The pandemic has exponentially blown that up. People need a friend. How much more so a friend who has the power of the resurrection in their life and has something to offer? from God himself. I've come to the conclusion that suffering for Americans is not dying for your faith. It's letting God choose your friends. You let God choose your friends, who you spend your time with, your resources, who you invest in. You let him bring them as opportunities for his glory to be displayed. We also see this beggar not only psychologically and socially, but see, physically, the gospel transformed him. The beggar is now being seen as a human, invited into a relationship, and we see in verse 6 and 7 something amazing happened. I mean, 
I love when I'm, I'm taking people through the Bible that have never read the Bible before, and they're just, man, this thing is so awesome. I can't, I can't wait to see what's going to happen next, what Jesus does. This is amazing what happens next. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And you got you to stop there at Acts 3 and go, wait a second. This looks like Jesus stuff. This looks like exactly what Jesus did. But it's, it's Peter and John doing it. Exactly. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead dwells in us. And he has called us to this same ministry. To enter into the brokenness of people's lives and to see the gospel transformation take place. Now, when Jesus and these apostles did these miracles, it was a specific historical redemptive moment to show the authoritative nature of the apostles that they spoke the same message, they had the same ministry as Jesus. And so we have been called to the same message. We have been given the same power. And so we should expect that God will do amazingly more than all we could ask or think, whether it's a miracle or not. We leave the results to God. We have the same power, same calling. We see a physical healing in this passage. And, and Luke is a physician. And so he writes in very medical terminology of what's happened. This is no physical therapy situation. This guy's been lame from birth, and he doesn't go through years and years of physical therapy. No, it's at that moment he rises up, and he is leaping, and he is walking. This is Isaiah language. When the kingdom of God comes, it says that the lame will leap like deer. We're seeing the kingdom of come get all over this guy. This guy that had been walked past and pitied and viewed as trash all his life, God viewed him very differently and had something for him that I don't think Peter and John ever really could have imagined either. You see, we might think that Peter if you read this passage, that he, that he reaches down and, and, and you know that it's like the Michelangelo picture of the Sistine Chapel of, of God reaching halfway and then, then man reaching up and they meet somewhere in the middle. No, no, no. This, is, this passage is for all you Calvinists. This, this is sovereignty happening here. This guy has no clue what is about to happen to him. And Peter, it says in the Greek, Peter reached down and he seized him by the right hand and he raised him up. The language is resurrection language. This was a physical expression of what God was doing in this man spiritually, raising him from death to life, giving him relationship, giving him a new life, a new hope. You know, many times we, as Presbyterians, we're a little afraid of this whole physical thing. And when I was planting the church in Raleigh, my, my oldest sister, uh, I have two sisters, and um, my oldest sister was the black sheep, my, young, my middle one was the white sheep, and I was the gray sheep. <laughs> um, well, the black sheep, she never really fit into church. 
She was into media production before MTV in Atlanta, was messed up on a lot of drugs, and just never fit into this world, honestly. And when I came into the Lord, that was, that was the person I wanted. I wanted, I wanted Jesus to, to rescue her. And he, uh, he never would answer my, my prayer. And it tore me up. And all of a sudden, one day, she said, you know, Kevin, I'm going to try to get my life back together. She had had a, a little girl out of wedlock. And so she started thinking about these kind of things. And I started getting excited, and she got into self-help gospel. And I was like, no, that's worse than, than the whole stuff in Atlanta. And so she started picking her life up by her own bootstraps, and, and she started doing marathons, getting in shape. And one day she went to get um, to do a marathon, and she started wheezing. And she went to one doctor, and he said, it's just, just asthma, don't worry about it. And then she went, and it kept getting worse. And so she went to another doctor, and he said, you've got full-blown lung cancer. You got, it's adenocarcinoma, and there's no way we can target it. And so you'll have about 18 months to live. And so you can imagine what I'm thinking about God at that moment. <laughs> you know, but then a few months later, my sister called me and said, Hey, Kevin, I'd like you to come with me to this little service. This little service as the United Methodist Church. I think the average age were in their 70s. And she said they have a healing service each month. I thought, oh, great. But I went. And it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. They would just gather the terminally ill together that they knew, friends, people in the community, people in their congregation, and they would just circle around them. And they would just pray over them, just pour over them with God. And I was, I was so numb with what was going on, trying to get the plant and my sister. And so I said, could you all pray for me? And so I kneeled down, and, and it was silent. And all of a sudden, I feel this hand on my shoulder, and it was my sister. And she said, Lord, I'd never heard her pray. I never heard, I don't think she ever had. And she said, Lord, Kevin has always longed to know if I know you. I pray that you would confirm it in his heart that I know you. And that if it were not for this cancer, I would not know you, nor would I glorify your name. I pray that you'd help me and Kevin to glorify you however many days you give us. You see, the miraculous power of the gospel, God would take her life to give her life. Her heart was so hardened that that's what it took. But he loved her so much. So you don't know what you're, what you're, what's going to happen when you offer it. But you can know God is going to do something amazing more than all you could ask or think. My sister's life was transformed. Her last six months, she only had eight months. Her last six months were some of the brightest testimony and witness of the goodness of God. She told everybody. She loved her daughter. She didn't have a memory of her mom as this broken, wayward mom. 
but as a beautiful testimony, a shining example of God's goodness and grace in her life. But you know, as good as this, this part of the healing was, I don't think it was the greatest miracle that happened that day. I think it was what happened spiritually in this man. And it's very subtle. But it says, and they took him in. They took him into the temple with them. You got to remember, this guy's been sitting and been placed outside of the temple gate day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, watching the people of God go in to meet with God. And they'd walk past him, and he was never allowed in. But not this day. Not this day. Peter took him in. And, and I can only imagine Peter and John taking this guy into the temple. You know, the Shekinah glory all around them. And, and, and they push open the, the temple doors. And, you know, like John Wayne. And they look around, just kind of nod back at him. And, but this guy, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what's kosher at the ninth hour prayer. All he knows is that, that Jesus has raised him up. And so what does he do? He goes running into the ninth hour prayer, leaping and praising God. You know, he hasn't read the book of church order of what you should be doing in worship. This guy's just excited that Jesus has met him and loved him. And so he is just expressing what's going on in his heart. You know... I wonder who needed who more that morning at ninth hour prayer. Those who were upholding their religion to this beggar or the beggar for those who upheld their religion. In verse 9 through 11 it says, And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. I mean, I could just imagine, too, as he goes in and he's making this big scene, and how dare he come in here? Doesn't he realize this is a solemn assembly of prayer? Hey, wait a second, that's that, that's that beggar from the side of the road. He's not allowed in here. Well, you know, I did give him some coins last week. And then somebody from the other side, well, he doesn't look too lame to me right now. And you know what? You know what? He's doing a whole lot better than I am. I've been coming here day after day and nothing. I want some of that. I want some of that. Don't you want some of that? Don't you want the power of the resurrection to, to take over and empower you? Well, that's exactly what they do when they start rushing this poor guy. They start going after him. And, and then they start to bow down before Peter and John as if it's from them. This guy says he clung to their legs. He was afraid to death at these religious people. It's interesting that we see that God loved this one who was bow-headed that needed to be lifted up and given hope but we also see the beauty of God's love 
to bring the arrogant down low that they might see him as well. You see this in verse 12 through 16. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this and why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. You killed the author of life that was raised from the dead. We were witnesses of it. But it was by his name, by faith in his name, that he was raised up. You see, Peter and John hit head on that religion. And that day, many were humbled that they would consider dropping their religion and putting their faith in Christ. When I did the workshop that I did Saturday in Florence, I was going to be preaching for them as well. And uh, I kept getting this phone call from unknown at five in the morning. You know, like a good pastor. Delete, And I was like, okay, something's going on. It's not a telemarketer. And so I answered the phone. And he said, uh, is this Mr. Thompson? I said, yes. And he said, um, I'm a, this is Dr. Norton. I'm the cardiovascular surgeon at Lexington Medical. And um, I wanted to call you personally. Uh, your dad was rushed to the ER this morning. Um, we think his aortic aneurysm is ruptured and his stomach is filled up with blood. And I've got to do emergency surgery right now. And... Um, he said, and as a brother in Christ, I wanted to call you as well. I can't imagine what a son would be thinking about with his father and not being here. And um, he said, I also wanted to tell you that I spoke to your dad and told him that I don't think you're going to make it through this. And uh, I just want to make sure you're ready to meet your maker. And he said, your dad began to talk about him having a son that was a pastor and all these wonderful things. He goes, I listened, but then I stopped him and said, no, no, I'm, I'm talking about you. Do you know Jesus Christ? And he went on to share the gospel with my father. And he affirmed his faith and they prayed together and he went into surgery. I'm glad to say my dad is a resilient man. He, is, he has a, an aortic aneurysm. The average is about 9 millimeters. He is, his is 13 centimeters. He has 17 stents. They're homemade all the way through his body. The Lord has something for him. But I tell you that story because here's a doctor, a cardiovascular surgeon, at the fifth hour in the ER. Fifth hour in the morning. Could just be another procedure another case, another surgery, his same old, same old. But his value was the kingdom of God. And he viewed my dad with great value and honor that whether he was going to make it through the surgery or not, he wanted to make sure that he knew Jesus Christ.
holding out the gospel in your same old, same old. I ask you, this summer, what's going to be your same old, same old? Are you going to uphold your religion? Are you going to just try to find ways to take advantage of it? Are you going to realize that God has given you the power of the resurrection? And you are the meeting place of God. And that every person that comes your way has, as Betsy said, every person that God brings in my way, I think of it as an opportunity to share the gospel. She's gotten it. She's gotten it. See, silver and gold we do not have. But what we do have, we give. It is for us that it has been given and it is us that he has called to offer. He will build his kingdom with you or without you. But I don't know about you, but I want some of that. I want my life to have some of that in it. And I want to see the privilege and the joy of seeing people's lives changed and transformed. I don't want to sit on the sideline. I want to be the one that God would use. Even a weak and broken, sinful vessel like me, that makes it even more glorious that he would see fit to use us. I pray that he'll do that through you individually, through your families, and as a church. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to listen and sit at your feet this morning. I'm always astounded, Lord. I'm always astounded at how you love those who are the least of them. I'm astounded that you would use betrayers and doubters and loudmouths like Peter and John to be your vessels. I'm amazed that you love even those who would put you to death and that would continue to lie and to ignore your person and uphold their religion. That you would love them so much that you would break into that. You would speak into that and you would transform them psychologically, socially, physically, and spiritually. God, do your work on us. Do your work on us. May the Spirit invade our hearts today. May we know the power of the resurrection. That we might comprehend your love and what you have done for us. And that we would see it as a huge privilege and opportunity to give it away. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.